All right. Today is Ephesians part 13. This is going to work out to be 15 parts. We have been thorough, and I am excited about that because I'm a thorough type of person. (laughs) So this is part 13. Let's recap from last week. We got more into chapter 5. We went from verse 3 up to verse 21 last week. We talked a lot about those three triads. Remember the three triads of uh, behavior that don't belong in the new creation anymore. There's no place for them. There was a specific emphasis on greed and on sexual immorality in those sections. And in the midst of all of that, grateful thanksgiving is offered as an antidote to those things, which makes sense for greed as we offer our thanksgiving, then greed and covetousness is eliminated. And as we offer thanksgiving for our bodies, and we see them as the gift that they are from the Lord, and that they're meant to glorify the Lord, then we're more uh, mindful of not using our bodies in ways that are not the Lord's way. We also see the bodies of others as sacred and meant to glorify the Lord as well. Then we talked about the contrast that Paul uses between darkness and light. He says that at one time you were darkness, but now you are children of the light. So you should walk as children of the light. And he talked about how our light exposes darkness all around us. He goes into this other contrast about wisdom and foolishness, um, contrasting those two things. To be wise is to discern the will of the Lord and to redeem the time. And then he contrasts being filled with things. He says there's being filled with wine, which leads to one kind of thing. And then there's being filled by the spirit, which leads to all of these subordinating clauses, um, singing, uh, speaking to each other in psalms and hymns, singing and creating poems and songs in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks and submitting one to another. Those are all direct results of being filled by the Spirit. So today is going to take us past verse 21. Um, This next movement goes all the way into chapter 6, verse 9. It's a lot to cover. Uh, We're not going to cover all of it today. It'll be divided between today and next week before we get all the way through this movement. So I will just start by reading through 521 through 6-9 here. Submitting, one, submitting to one another in reverence of the Messiah, wives to their own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as the Messiah is head of the church and the deliverer of the body. But as the church submits to the Messiah, so also wives submit to their husbands in every way. Husbands, be loving your wives as the Messiah loves the church and gave himself on her behalf so that he could set her apart having purified by washing of water with a word, so he could present the church to himself, glorious, having no stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be set apart and blameless. In this way, the husbands are obligated to love their own wives as their own bodies. The one who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he raises and nurses it, just as Messiah does for the church, because we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave the father and mother, and he will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This open secret is great, but I am speaking about the Messiah and the church. 
Nevertheless, each one of y'all should love his own wife in this way, and the wife should revere her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well for you, and you will be in the land a long time. And fathers, do not provoke your children, but raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters according to the flesh, with serious reverence and sincerity of your heart as to the Messiah, not as a human pleaser doing eye service, but as slaves of the Messiah, doing the will of God from your very being, with good will, serving as to the Lord, not humans, knowing that each person, whatever good he might do, that one will receive from the Lord, whether as slave or free man. And masters, do the same things to them, giving up threats, knowing that their Lord and your own is in the heavenlies, and there is no favoritism with him. That's the whole section. To begin to talk about this section, though, we have to back up a little bit. So we'll do that. You'll recognize this from, let's see... There it is. I don't know why I didn't see it the first time. All right, we're going to back up a little bit. We've got to go back to verse 18. There's an important reason why. All scholars agree that Paul is starting a new sentence here in verse 18. There is no consensus on where he ends it. Can you imagine that? That there's differing opinions on where the sentence ends. But everyone agrees that it starts here at verse 18. And in your translation, you'll see that it goes all the way through to verse 24. There's no full stop. There's no period until you get here to the end of verse 24. So looking at verse 18 up here, there's this governing verb, be filled by the Spirit. And since that is the governing verb, it just means that now there's going to be these subordinating clauses. There's going to be these results that flow from being filled by the Spirit. And those subordinating clauses connected to that Spirit-filled behavior are listed here. There's speaking, creating poems, singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. And then as you continue down here in verse 22, um, it has no verb in the original Greek manuscript. A lot of your English translations will add the word submit after wives here. It'll say, wives, submit to your husbands. But in the original Greek, there is no verb after wife in verse 22, and that's because it is directly connected to this verb right here, submitting to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. And that is part of the address to the entire body. That is for the whole body the entire body, is to submit to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. Again, this lack of a verb in the original Greek is directly connected and flowing from everyone in the body submitting to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. So Paul goes on with his instructions to the wives. And then in verse 25, he gets into the instruction for the husbands. What he's doing here is he's giving the other side of the coin for husbands in this mutual submitting to one another. So this is kind of my premise that I'll lay out for you. That was an example of it. So verse 22 to the wives 
and verse 25 to the husbands are illustrations of this governing verb right here, submitting to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. That's my premise that I'm laying out for you today, and that I'm going to build on as we go forward. <clears throat> so, verse 20, 21, and 22. These are really important. How they relate to each other, depending on your translation, will say a lot about the interpretation of the following verses. Now, when I tell you, and I've said this before, that something is a really long sentence in the Greek, I feel like I need to explain that a bit. In ancient Greek, they did not typically use full stops, like periods or commas. Um, changes at the beginning and an end of a sentence is more indicated grammatically by transition words or um, comparison words, changes in subject, things like that. So when you're translating something from ancient Greek into English, it is not a simple one-to-one -one conversion. Like, I think of it like you're converting Celsius to Fahrenheit. There is no formula that they are plugging this into. And it's quite challenging. And uh, I think that the goal of translation committees, number one, is to take this ancient Greek manuscript and translate it into an accessible English that the most people can read and engage with. And since it's not a simple one-to-one -one, um, conversion, a lot of times you kind of have to decide what's the interpretation of these verses before you can even begin to translate it. And you'll see that as you look at different translations. So what I don't want to do today is discourage you about your English Bible translations. They are incredible. In terms of the message of the gospel, Christ and him crucified, they are wonderfully preserved and very united in all of those things. What I do want to do is encourage you to look at different translations, not just focus on one, but look at different ones and be mindful kind of of what's the interpretation of this and how are they arranging it according to that. That's just a good thing to do, to be mindful. So I'll show you a few examples of how this is done in different translations. So I'll start here with the NRSV. <clears throat> so let's find our verse 18. It's right up here. You see, be filled, your governing verb, be filled. And the participles or the subordinates are indicated, be filled as you do all of these things. All of these things that are a result of being filled by the Spirit. You sing, you make melody, you give thanks, <clears throat> but they separate the last subordinating clause. Be subject to one another out of reverence for the Messiah. They separate that from the rest of the instruction to the entire body. They put it under a new heading and pair it here with the household code that starts in verse 22. Also, they add this verb right here that, remember, we talked about is absent in the original manuscripts. And uh, this will be noted in a lot of your translations with a footnote, and it'll say, this is absent from the original manuscript. But they add it right here. So that's one way that this is translated. And then if we look at another example that's slightly different, it'll have a little bit of a different flavor to it. So this is the New American Standard. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. 
And then they're going to go into all those subordinating clauses. So there's a comma here. And we see all of them speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks. And they also include the uh, verse about mutual submission, submitting one to another, is included with the instruction for everybody. But then there's a break. They insert a paragraph break right here, and they put a new title. And even doing that makes it seem a little bit like, okay, well, we're moving on from that. We're moving on to something new. And they also insert the subject yourselves verb after the instruction beginning with the wives. And uh, NAS indicates that by putting those verbs that are absent in italics. So if you see something in italics in the NAS, it means it is not there in the original manuscript. So I hope you can see how each one is just slightly different. And I'll show you the one we've been looking at here in a second. But this is the basic breakdown of what I've just showed you. When verse 21, let's go back to the example. When verse 21 is separated from the preceding verses addressing all believers submitting to one another, and that is then paired with the description down here of the household code, it makes it seem as if submission isn't for everyone, but only for wives. And that will then color how we interpret everything that follows from there. If we are to include um, the submission in the list of participles right here that proceed from spirit-filled behavior, then it becomes more like an interpretation that what's going to happen after that is a description of the household as illustrations of submitting one to another in the family, just as the body submits to a, one another in the new creation. And then even if you look at our translation here, down here, in the logical flow section, this is unbroken. They are translating verses 18 through 24 as one sentence. So you can see how the instruction just flows. Submitting one to another in reverence of the Messiah, comma, wives to their husbands as to the Lord, and then it'll go on down. There's just slightly, there's small differences, but it's good to look at these different translations and understand what's the interpretation behind this and how it is being arranged, and maybe how someone else does something different and has a different interpretation cause you to think about what it is you think about those things. So let's talk about the word submit, and some other translations use the word subject. <clears throat> In Greek, this word is hupotasso. I'm thirsty today. This word is hupotasso. So it's two parts. Hupo means under, and tasso means to place or to set. So when Paul tells these believers to subject themselves to one another or to submit themselves to one another, he's telling this community to place themselves under their brothers and sisters. He's telling them to set themselves in a lower position than their brothers or sisters. If you remember, we've talked so much about this, the honor-shame culture that this church was steeped in. It was all around them. And in the honor-shame culture, it's almost impossible to change your station. You're born into certain privileges or not. 
And the most powerful people in that society, the higher ups, they determine what attributes and what behaviors are honorable and what are shameful. And then they determine your worth according to what attributes you have. And you would never surrender the honor that you had been assigned by the community in, in this society. That would be crazy. You would never do that. You would never give that up. You would hang on to it for dear life because you can't go forward. Why would you go backward? It made no sense in their culture, and it was a radical concept when Paul was talking to them about placing themselves under one another, about taking a lower station than your brother or sister. This was a really big deal to surrender your honor in honor of someone else, to lift them up. But it's what we see Jesus doing over and over and over again. As you look at the story of the Gospels, he showed this in everything he did, who he ate with, who he talked to, the people that he healed, those he discipled, those he allowed to follow him, the people that he loved, those he allowed to anoint him. He was constantly doing this. He was constantly surrendering his honor and lifting up other people. And it's radical that Paul goes on to spell this out, this mutual submission with illustrations from the intimate everyday setting of the home. He's showing them what does the new creation look like in the Greco-Roman household. And it was really important that he addressed this issue on this intimate level because these believers, they didn't have an impersonal place like we have here, like a neutral place where they would come from their home and then they would meet in this neutral place. That's not what they have. They were meeting in each other's homes. So it was very intimate. And when you're going to church, you're seeing the way people are living their lives. Like that is on display for the whole community of believers. So Paul really wanted to address this, the relations within the family, because it was important. Everybody in the new creation community was going to be seeing this for these families that were hosting this. All right. So if you haven't yet guessed, there are two views on this subject. And I don't want to be like two, like there's only two camps. Both views are nuanced. You know, there's different shades. Um, but I feel like I should just be upfront and tell you there are two views. And I want to show you both views on this, okay? So let's take a, a look at view one. This is a quote from a theologian, um, Frank Thielman. And he says, this is his view. The pronoun to one another does not mean that all believers are to submit to all other believers, but that among believers, submission should take place as it is described in 522 through 69. So what Frank is saying here is that Paul isn't saying everyone submit to everyone within the new creation, but submit to each other according to these structured hierarchies that I'm about to spell out for you. That's view one. That would often be described as complementarian or hierarchical view of reading of the scripture. And then there is view two, which would often be described as egalitarian, or I prefer a mutualist view. So view two, this is kind of wordy, but I'll break it down a little bit for you. The mutual submission admonished here relativizes conventional authority structures for people who lived in a society 
where status and authority were rigidly marked and strictly observed. So again, we're looking at that immovable social structure. Um, the status of a person is, is fixed in this society. And so in the new creation, that structure of fixed status is relativized by humility. To relativize something means to bring it more into a relative level. See, like everyone's moving this way. That's what it means to relativize. And that happens by humility. Whatever status you have out in society, you don't lord that over your brothers and sisters. So as the one with the higher status um, honors and places himself under the other, they become more relative. Does that make sense? And then for the person who has the lower status in society, they can't use that to shame someone that has a higher status because it's not about our flesh. The one with the lower status doesn't say, well, I'm just going to tear down the one with the higher status and insert myself up there. That's not what it's about either. It's about everyone submitting one to another and lifting each other up through the character of Christ and having humility. That's really what this is about. So to finish the quote, the epistles call for a relativity of authority within the spirit-filled body requires a disposition of humility, similar to that described in Philippians 2, 3-4, where others are considered to be of a higher status and people attend to the interests of others rather than their own. Moreover, mutual submission is done in reverence for Christ. That is, believers' obedience to Christ will lead them to submit to one another. Whatever authority and status an individual might have in the world is relativized by believers' common service to one Lord, Christ. In this common service, they are both able to and called to submit to one another. The master and the slave are brothers. You have the same inheritance. They have the same father. And as all of these people serve one another and place themselves under one another, a whole new, completely new way of living begins to take shape within this body of believers. And this is summed up well in this second quote here. In view two, Ephesians 5.21 is parallel to Galatians 5.13, which says, become slaves of one another through love. This expression adjusts an inherently hierarchical relationship, slavery. It's inherent that this is based on a hierarchy. There is a master and there is a slave. Not by canceling it, it doesn't do away with it in the name of equality, but by making it reciprocal, a hierarchy that turns both ways. The simple but powerful word to these people and to us, one another, turns a one-way relationship of power and superiority into a mutual relationship of reciprocal deference, where each seeks to promote the interests of the other. So it's not, hey, let's go out into the world and change your status as a slave so that I can have respect for you at church. That is not what it's about. It's mutually putting the interests of others before your own. The maintaining of order in the new creation is not dependent upon hierarchy. It's dependent upon each person walking in the character of Christ toward one another 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's talking to people here too that live in the right now, not yet. They're a new creation. And also, they have to function where they are here on earth. He is not, Paul is not advocating for social revolution because that would just be another thing according to the powers that would eventually become corrupt. He's not advocating for free all the slaves and give all the women rights and let them rule over their husbands. Because when you tear down one thing and you just put in another human structure, it's just going to become corrupt. That is the course of history. It's just a constant back and forth. And this reminds me of Romans 13.1. Paul uses the same word submit. And he says, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. The governing authorities were some of the ones that were persecuting the earliest movement of believers. But yet, Paul says, submit yourself to the governing authorities. He doesn't say, go down there and start a social revolution and rebel and cite a riot and just tear down this whole thing. That is not what he is saying. What he's doing is he's giving them wisdom on how to live in a totally new category. It's not according to these old categories of who's going to have the power. You've had the power long enough. Now we want to have the power. That is just the way of the world. That is not the way that we do things in the spirit. He's giving them wisdom on how to live in this new category. It has to be 100% dependent on the transformation of the spirit and the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin to get into a little bit the instruction, um, the household code section. So the instruction on the household starts here with the wives. They're addressed first. Remember that this missing verb here indicates that it's an extension of submitting to one another, which was an instruction to the entire body of believers. Now, by the time Paul reaches verse 25 here, his instruction to the husband is pretty getting to be removed from his governing verb up here, submitting to one another. So he puts in another verb, and it's not submit. It's husband, love your wives. I would posit to you that he's referring back to the same concept of submitting one to another, and he's drawing another illustration of what that looks like here in this home. It's clearly meant as a balance to the instruction to the wives. And then Paul goes on to illustrate this submitting one to another with children and fathers. And then he takes it all the way down into slaves and masters and shows them, illustrates for them what it looks like to live in this home and the new creation, submitting one to another out of the humility given by the Spirit. All right. So Paul is very well versed in the philosophies and the literature of his time and the culture that he is in. This guy knows a lot of stuff. He's really, really smart. He knows all about the Greek and he knows his Hebrew scriptures. And uh, if you remember, he's, he's playing the part of prophet here. Remember when we talked about the gifts that Jesus gives to the church for the edifying and the building up of the church? The definition of the prophet really hit home for me there. And I think this is just perfectly what Paul is exemplifying. 
This is what he's doing. A prophet is someone who's steeped in the scriptures and in the nuances of the present cultural moment, who can discern the will of God, who can have that apocalyptic mindset. He knows the will of God for a specific person or a specific community. And then he's able to address them with authority. Um, I think this is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's going to use the current culture's conception of the household code, and he's going to recast what it looks like. And for these people to be in a church, men, women, slave, free, Greek, and Jew, children, to all be sitting there and having this letter read to them, this would have been, they would have picked up on this. They would have picked up on this him connecting their culture to this recasting. And this would have been really radical to them. And it is not to us. <laughs> we see it through an entirely different cultural lens. But it would be like if I adapted the words to the Pledge of Allegiance to make a point. You would hear it. It would make sense to you. You would automatically pick up on it. But we don't see the same thing because we come from a completely different culture, so far removed from this. And for them, probably the most charged part of this whole household code was the portion about slaves and masters. Over 50% of the population in this place is slaves. Can you imagine what would happen if a really good slave rebellion got kicked up? Then over 50% of your population is coming against you. That's dangerous. So the concept of masters placing themselves under slaves is like seditious. It's, it is really a radical concept. So that was really charged for them. We don't live in a culture and a society that has over 50% of their population as slaves. So that's not radical for us. It really just isn't a thing in our culture. So for us, the most charged part of this is the section between husbands and wives. But it makes sense because we're in a totally different culture. So look, let's look at this. If you were a male, if you were free, you had never been a slave. You were a Roman citizen that managed to acquire land and to build some sort of an estate. This was your household. This is what it looked like. So you were the ruler. You were the patriarch. And this is how you related to all of your subordinates that lived in your household. And any kind of household code and instruction that is written during this time is only ever addressed to the patriarch. It's written to the patriarch for his benefit on how to manage the subordinates that are in his home. It's never addressed to anyone else that lives in the home. So let's just read this quote from Aristotle. He came about 300 years before Paul's time, but this same sentiment is echoed in some of Paul's contemporaries like Josephus. So let's see what he said. This was a huge influence on the Greco-Roman culture. Seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of the household management correspond to the person's who composed the household, and a complete household consists of slaves and free men. Now we should begin by examining everything in its fewest possible elements, and the first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children.
Here's another example. You can already begin to see the same pattern. You see the three groupings, husband and wife, father and children, slave and free. Of the household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father, and a third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw, rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal, and the rule over his wife is based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. You can see the overlap in format here with what we read from Paul. Paul understands how this culture works. He understands how these homes are structured, but he also has the apocalyptic mindset, and he's led by the Spirit in regard to how believers relate to each other as the new humanity in Jesus. This is how the world walked. This is how the world walked at the time that Paul was writing this. I want to remind you of what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, At one time you walked according to this world, according to the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, according to the passions of the flesh, indulging those desires of the mind. Don't walk like that anymore. That's what he says to us in chapter 2. So my question is, is he saying, except on this, except on this, walk like them just in this way. I'll tell you something. I don't know a lot of passions of the flesh more intoxicating than having power over another person. That is intoxicating. I would say he is not adopting that wholesale and bringing it into the new creation. He is not doing that. What he is doing is he's adapting it for the right now, not yet. Notice how Aristotle says here that the household is just like a mini microcosm of the state. It's like the foundation that the authority and structure and consistency of the state is built on. So to mess with this household order and the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's time is to cause the breakdown of the empire. It's taken as a direct threat. If you begin to mess with this enough, we're going to come after you. So dropping a bomb into this cultural order would have brought unnecessary disrepute onto the gospel message and onto the people in the early church. He's still dropping this relational bomb, but it has to come through the transformation of the spirit and character rather than social upheaval. It has to come in us by the spirit. That humility has to come by the spirit. It doesn't come by free the slaves and let the women rule over their husbands. And that's not what it comes by. It comes by the spirit. And I'm reminded right now of not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. That's what it comes by. That's what this transformation comes by. And it's so subversive. 
It's just the incredible thing that the Holy Spirit does as he begins to transform things under the radar and no one can stop him because it's not a social revolution. It's not about elevating a new group of people just so they can become corrupt and ruin everything. It's about this unity in Jesus and this beautiful playing out of the character of Jesus between people that before they got saved, before they were filled with the Spirit, they couldn't even do that. There was no hope for them. But now that they're new, they can live out this new beautiful way of life. So Paul cared very much about how the larger culture regarded this early movement of Christianity. And we can find that in different parts of Scripture. Some great examples. 1 Timothy 6.1 All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So as Paul's saying here, I advocate for slavery. You should all go out and get slaves. That's definitely not what he's saying. He's saying there's a culture around us, and if Onesimus just goes and joins the slave revolt down the street, he's just going to end up crucified. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. So, so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against do these things up here. This is said also in Titus chapter 2. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. These scriptures are about their reputation in the community. They were already pretty scandalous. We read that over and over again in the accounts of them, um, people accusing them of worshiping a king other than Caesar, which they did. So they were already so scandalous. Just the worship gathering was scandalous. People of different social statuses eating and communing together as equals was easily perceived as a threat to the social order of the empire. That was just not done. It was scandalous. The fact that women and children were welcomed was cause for suspicion in this culture. So they already had enough going on. Paul cared about what this looked like from the outside. So what he's doing here, he's adopting the form, but he's adapting it. He's changing the foundation of how it functions. He is dethroning the system of power and he is placing Jesus over all. And out of reverence to the Messiah, everyone sets themselves under their fellow believers, walking in the character and the humility of Jesus, treating those parts of the body that they used, that they used to think of as less honorable with special honor. And they're lifting everybody up by grace. Next week, we'll go more into this and finish up this section. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you so much that you give us a new identity. It is not dependent on who we are in the world. It is not dependent by flesh. And I thank you that that you've made a way for that, that we don't have to claw our way out of our station in life. That when we become a new creation, you give us a totally new identity. You give us a value that cannot be taken from us, Lord. Help us to remember our brothers and sisters in our homes, in our body. Lord, help us to consistently place ourselves under one another and to live that out because nothing will stand out like new creation, like that will. That just does not look right to the world. But as we do it, it is going to preach. It is going to testify to who you are and what you have done. So help us, help us, help us to do that, Lord, to love one another and to set ourselves under one another, Lord. We thank you that you served us, that you came, that you left your station, that you came, that you lived, you died for us, and that you rose again. We thank you for our inheritance and victory that you have won for us, Lord. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.